Welcome to another Free No Fair podcast about election security and democracy in the 21st century. This is the Backsliding in America episode. I'm Morgan Wack, and I'm co-hosting today with Forum Fellow Nicholas Wittstock. Hi, Morgan. Yes, I'll be co-hosting our discussion as this will be a crossover episode between Neither Free No Fair and the UW Political Economy Forum podcast. Today, we'll focus on democratic decline in the United States. That's right. Recent domestic political developments have unsurprisingly drawn attention to the health of American democracy, leading to the compression of anecdotal evidence and attention on specific laws and policies into a larger narrative regarding potential backsliding. As we here on the podcast are in favor of democracy, we, like many others, have been searching for a more, more robust analysis to see if these wider perceptions are indeed capturing a larger trend in, in democratic backsliding in America, and if so, what's behind it? Yeah, so luckily for us, we have with us today Assistant Professor of Political Science Jake Grombach from the University of Washington, uh, who is making his second appearance today on the podcast. Um, Professor Grombach is an expert across a range of areas in American politics, as well as statistics, uh, and he's also a self-proclaimed connoisseur of 70s funk and 90s hip-hop. So welcome back, Jake Grombach. Thanks so much for having me. In filling in for James today, we wanted to talk to you about your recent article entitled Laboratories of Democratic Backsliding, which has made quite a splash, having been featured in The Economist, New York Times, New York Magazine, Vox, The Washington Post, and I'm sure a number of other places on the dark web. As, uh, as Nick noted, your article looks to answer at least two essential questions about American democracy. Yeah, so to start us off, Jake, uh, you're, stu- you're studying the state of American democracy at the state level. What do you find? Uh, that's right. Um, so... I focus on the state level in the United States in measuring and testing theories of democratic expansion and backsliding because in the US, uh, uh, democratic institutions like election administration are done at the state level. And what I find is that since 2000, there's been some major divergence between states and their democratic performance with some states experiencing some serious democratic decline that really threatens the entire American political system. So we, we mentioned that your research has been already widely quoted, even though it just recently came out. What do you think the wider reaction has been so far? And why do you think it's driving so much attention? Oh, thanks. Um, I think, uh, uh, so the reactions, I mean, I felt like they've been positive, if I do say so myself, which has been nice. Um, and it was surprising to receive this attention. So this is this analysis is related to some analysis in my book manuscript that should be forthcoming in early 2022. Um, if I get the copy edits done correctly. Um, So this has been an argument I've been making for, you know, I presented this at CSSS at UW, at Wiser at UW and elsewhere, Um, uh, uh, discussed it uh, pretty frequently, but then this put up a working paper uh, that unexpectedly took off. And people's reactions were mostly like, this is very concerning, the findings here, and that uh, the findings are not necessarily surprising, though but that it does sort of uh, quantitatively and hopefully, I hope systematically show uh, uh, trends of which many of us have been interested over uh, the past decade. Right, so I'm kind of curious in the origin story of this idea because when I first heard about it, I was frankly a little bit surprised that in the US democracy is not measured at the state level at all, apparently. And, so extremely um, important uh, contribution that you're making here. Um, did you, first of all, could you speak to like how democracies or democratic quality is usually measured, who, who, who it's measured by and wh- who decides on what level it's measured at really? Yeah, that's such a great question. So 
uh, basically, especially since, you know, 2016 or so, I don't, I don't know why it's just a coincidence that year, uh, many scholars and political observers and thinkers started really worrying about uh, democratic backsliding in the US. And they turned to these measures of national level democracy across countries uh, by people, uh, groups like Brightline Watch, Polity, the Varieties of Democracy Project. And these groups uh, do really important work um, with similar measurement of democratic quality across countries and across time. So they could say, you know, here in, you know, uh, Hungary's democracy is under threat here in India in this way, and then democratic expansion or backsliding in Chile and so forth. Um, and the US was really looking uh, at risk of moving from like a, a solid democratic regime towards a mixed authoritarian regime or sort of illiberal democratic status, um, which other countries uh, with mixed regime types, you know, uh, uh, people consider Russia now, uh, uh, Hungary, Turkey, uh, countries like that in this sort of middling category. But like you said, there was actually not much systematic measurement of democratic performance using these sorts of techniques and these sorts of quantitative measures at the state level. And that's pretty, uh, that was definitely an issue because in the US, these democratic institutions from legislative districting to police authority to uh, uh, election administration and voter suppression tactics are done by state governments. They have the constitutional authority over these democratic institutions, which other countries, even other federal institutional countries don't have. Yes, yeah, so that was going to be my next question. I was going to ask if this had been done in any other uh, federal systems, but perhaps you can, if that's not the case, you can talk no, us through. No, well, it has. So okay. uh, there, there's been uh, some measurement of subnational democratic performance in Argentina, um, some in India. Uh, they uh, have been over sort of different periods of time, sometimes one snapshot in time um, using uh, different sorts of indicators and variables. Uh, and measures to measure democratic performance subnationally. But it's interesting, again, because the US is the most extreme of this sort of type of decentralized federal institutional system where, again, democratic institutions, whether democracy lives or dies is determined by state governments in the US for the most part. It was interesting that something like that hadn't been done in the systematic way in the US. That's not to say that state level democracy has not been an important topic in political science and social science. There's a huge amount of research on, for example, re policy responsiveness to public opinion at the state level is a major sort of cottage industry in American politics research. Um, there's a, a people who look at sort of uh, the power of concentrated interest groups and the wealthy and how they may uh, sort of uh, distort democratic responsiveness and uh, exert influence through uh, political organizations and money in politics and so forth. Um, uh, we've heard about the rise of, you know, the American Legislative Exchange Council and model bills and the Koch brothers network from scholars like Alex Hertel Fernandez. There's a tremendous, and scholars of race and ethnic politics, probably most prominently, have pointed to the clear historical pattern in the U.S. that it's been state and local governments that have directly and indirectly enforced racial hierarchy through slavery and in Jim Crow throughout most of American history. And those have been the, the main sort of constraints or challenges for American democracy uh, in its history. So there's been a tremendous amount of attention, but not in this way to sort of aggregate it all up uh, with uh, systematic measurement 
of democratic performance and then test theories of democratic expansion and contraction that had not been done. Hmm. So when you say that um, people are increasingly categorizing the United States as an illiberal democracy, what kind of institutional changes are people referring to? Right. So I think it was uh, there was the sense that it was really under threat that uh, in all sorts of ways. So that uh, there was a runaway sort of executive branch that wasn't being checked by uh, the legislature. And that's been a long term thing. You know, Trump expanded upon that. But uh, when we think about the powers of war making um, and foreign policy, that's in the Constitution. Congress is meant to declare war. But the last war in the U.S. declared was World War II. Um, there's been a tremendous amount of uh, military activity since then. Um, there's uh, uh, questions of sort of attacks on the free press, um, attacks on uh, uh, freedom of association and sort of authoritarian repression. The idea that the uh, national security state could be leveraged by, uh, uh, at the time, President Trump, uh, that Donald Trump was calling on state election administrators to basically grant him their, basically, essentially uh, to perform a coup or grant him electoral college votes. There was the January 6th insurrection that was sort of stoked by this uh, coalition. Um, that was a, a essentially a coup attempt, or we could ask James about that actually. Um, but uh, all of those things, plus uh, sort of corruption and uh, self-dealing through, you know, Mar-a-Lago and uh, uh, sort of personal enrichment using the office, all these things are signs of a democracy not functioning uh, in sort of free, fair, equitable ways. Um, neither free nor fair, as one might say. There's a number of other examples, uh, the erosion of norms. So that essentially the erosion of a norm that, uh, you know, the party in power is allowed to appoint Supreme Court justices, right? There's a, uh, 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 no nomination of uh, and sort of confirmation of Merrick Garland, uh, then uh, the erosion of sort of parliamentary norms around uh, consensus in bills that you don't use the filibuster, for example, to access um, uh, sort of threats on the legitimacy, attacks on the legitimacy of the political opposition. It just goes so, <laughs> goes so deeply various threats, but again, um, so far, knock on wood, we haven't seen that explosion uh, of all of those threats really coming together to produce a sort of uh, real change in regime type, but it, that threat still persists. Yes, I guess one interesting question on top of that, that I know Nick, you had a question about this as well, would be, do you think that kind of this cascade effect has been hindered or helped by the federal system? Has the federal system itself stopped it from snowballing and becoming a larger crisis, or has it actually enabled smaller pockets of, you know, authoritarianism to expand? Yeah, that's the million dollar question. Go for it, Nicholas. Sorry, yeah, just to, to uh, add on, on onto that question. So uh, this critique of like sort of the, the executive agency or, or different kinds of executive agencies of the United States government amassing more and more control, um, you know, I don't know, Partly, you know, like having rulemaking, enforcing, and also judicial oversight uh, functions over those kind of um, uh, policy areas that they carve out. Isn't that counterbalanced by the very federated structure of the United States? Such an important question uh, you guys are getting at. Um, so 
during the Trump presidency, we heard a tremendous amount of essentially, thank God for federalism and institutional decentralization. There's a would-be autocrat in power in Washington, D.C., in the nation's capital. Thank God that election uh, administration, for example, is done at the state level where oppositional blue state governments are not going to flip and sort of help the out-party president steal an election in 2020. That was a, a frequent discussion and is probably correct. But that uh, there's this trade-off and we don't hear about the other side of the coin. So granted, if you have a would-be autocrat in national power in Washington, DC, yes, at that moment, you want decentralized institutions. But the other side of the coin is, uh, and sort of Morgan implied this when he started asking the question, is that decentralization may allow uh, may actually increase the likelihood that you get a would-be autocrat in national power in the first place. So there's this trade-off, essentially, uh, uh, you know, increasing your risk on the one hand, but then you have insurance once that risk is in national power and the flip side of that. So I'm with, uh, in my book and in general, I'm trying to really show that side of the coin of this trade-off that actually when you have institutional decentralization, you have really semi-permanent capture of some subnational institutions by an anti-democratic coalition. And because states administer elections from president all the way down to local dog catcher, right? They have control over all election administration, who gets to register to vote, how hard it is to vote for all offices, federal, state, local. That means that they uh, really have a hand in distorting representation and potentially empowering anti-democratic forces nationally. But then again, once those anti-democratic forces are empowered nationally, it's harder to capture the entire system due to the institutional decentralization. So I have a question about the kind of negatives and positives here, just an extension of that. What is it about, you mentioned specific policies such as gerrymandering and, and voter ID laws, those sorts of things. What is it about kind of the negative extensions of federalism that give them an advantage over sort of positive innovations, potentially you know, expansions of democratic power at these places? Is it equal and it just happens to be that in certain states and it's a you know, battle back and forth or is there some sort of advantage to restriction that can snowball in different ways uh, in specific states? Great point. So uh, on the one hand, yes, uh, some states have really innovated in expanding democracy and I would say just for context, like on average, it is easier to vote in the United States for the average American than it was, let's say 30, 1990 or so. Um, that's absolutely the case. And that's a triumph in some ways. Um, uh, at the same time, there's been a real sort of divergence across states where some states have made it uh, voting more, uh, less costly, more accessible. Um, states like Washington State, where we're at, um, have made important strides. Uh, Washington State uh, was a leader in uh, mail balloting and providing physical polling places, as well as an option for mail voting, same day voter registration, which uh, research of mine with uh, Charlotte Hill, uh, who is on the program with me uh, uh, maybe you know some months ago, uh, shows that this is really crucial for young voters um, who tend to move around a lot. And when you move addresses, you have to re-register. So the idea that you can on election day or when you're casting your ballot, you can register to vote has been crucial for young voters to be incorporated into the political process. And uh, American politics is completely uh, 
in many ways a gerontocracy, a, a sort of ruled by the old. Um, you can see this in the average age of senators and members of the US House. Um, but young people also uh, in public spending is overwhelmingly tilted towards older people in the US compared to other industrial democracies. Uh, all of that means it's really important for young people to be a part of the uh, political process and same day voter registration has done that. Automatic voter registration later was implemented in Washington state. Um, they have pretty fair ungerrymandered districts that allow uh, 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 sort of competitive elections, right? And don't pack voters of a particular party into districts in weird squiggly shaped districts. Um, all of that contributes to a more healthy and accessible electoral democracy. Um, it's uh, uh, been some real progress. On the other hand, uh, you've seen some real democratic backsliding in states like North Carolina and Wisconsin, Alabama, Ohio, and so forth. And Morgan asked the great question, is there an asymmetry here? Is the risk from backsliding, does that outweigh the benefits of expanding access to democracy in these other sort of high performing states? And I'd say absolutely, yes, that is the case, that the real danger is having uh, some states that uh, are have really poor democratic performance um, because those states can really disenfranchise people. Um, and uh, what we see now is with the current partisan geography of the United States, North Carolina is a like still kind of a swing state, um, which means that, uh, and that's in its uh, overall sort of public opinion and partisanship of its, of its adult residents. Um, but through gerrymandering and voter suppression, that uh, becomes much more valuable in that sort of competitive context versus many states that like Washington state are pretty solid blue um, that have essentially, you know, uh, little to no statewide uh, competitive Republicans anymore. This means that there's the increasing sort of geographic concentration of Democrats on the coasts and especially in urban areas. And this means that like expanding democracy in those areas has less ramifications for the entire system than democratic backsliding in states like Florida or North Carolina or Wisconsin. So could you speak to some of the other institutions than voting rights on which there has been substantial divergence in between different states? Yeah, so one really, uh, I think, I would say interesting thing that came out of this line of research. And it's not, it's in the appendix of the working paper uh, that we can post, but uh, in, I deal more with it in my book manuscript and with some other work with uh, uh, Phil Rocco and Jamila Michener. But if you disaggregate measures of democracy, so democracy is a very broad concept, right? So varieties of democracy does a good job with this, and it's really important. Again, shout out to the normative theorists, our democratic theorists here. You know, in the tradition of, uh, you know, really going back, certainly to John Rawls and before, or Habermas and deliberation, right? These sorts of democratic theorists, or one could consider, uh, yeah, or Tommy Shelby, or uh, you know, even going back to W. E. B. Du Bois and uh, 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 thinking about American democracy. There are different components of democracy. One is electoral democracy, that's what I've been really focused on. So election administration, voter suppression, legislative districting and uh, sort of uh, bias in that system. And then there are separate components like liberal democracy, right? So the idea that people have civil liberties, there's also 
issues of egalitarianism uh, from traditions of social democracy from Latin American Europe, uh, especially scholars focused in those areas. And then uh, in addition, there's probably other components like deliberation and things like that. But I would say what's really fascinating here is that you've seen tremendous divergence between democratic and Republican controlled states on electoral democracy over the past 20 years. And you've seen less divergence, in fact, on the liberalism component. If you consider things like policing authoritarianism, whether an individual has sort of civil liberties against state authority in that way, um, when you think about, uh, you know, reproductive rights for women, um, uh, uh, when you think about uh, other sort of civil rights and liberties in that way, you've actually seen less divergence. And especially in the US, one crisis of democracy is its system of mass incarceration and policing, which we see police brutality against uh, uh, Black Americans on camera, and also a larger prison population than any country in the world, including, you know, authoritarian countries with much, much larger populations. The US has a larger prison population. This is very bad for its sort of, you know, liberal democracy component, but remarkably, you don't see much difference between democratic and Republican controlled states on those civil liberties based issues um, that may be changing as a result of uh, the Black Lives Matter movement and things like that. But, you know, in modern history, since the 1970s, the massive the rise of mass incarceration has been bipartisan, unlike this new divergence on voting rights and gerrymandering. So your paper starts off in, well, the, the focus of the analysis is from 2000 forward. And I wonder if you could talk through why you chose that year um, and whether you think this carries on into the past, or at least the recent past prior to that. And also what you think, just more generally, what has made the Republican Party more willing to engage in these types of activities in recent years than the Democratic Party? Two great questions. So uh, the, the years of coverage are, basic, are the classic quant social science answer here is sort of data availability. Um, I would love to, you know, in the future, uh, you know, get a team of research assistants and uh, develop a longer time series that would be very cool. Um, and I think it's really crucial to, like I said before, it's easier to vote on average than it was in 1990. But the real crucial thing is while the democratic backsliding has been hugely consequential over the past 20 years, it's not at the same level as uh, uh, Jim Crow or certainly then uh, state laws around slavery, right? Those things, right now the battles are over a narrower, narrower range of the democracy dimension these days than, uh, you know, pre-1970s. Um, that's crucial to remember. So I'm actually wary a bit concerned about how valid we can make a measure of state level democracy that really compares voter suppression now to pre-1965 or actually in some states, voting rights weren't really enforced uh, for black Americans until the seventies. Um, but really that's a, yeah, in somewhat different league. At the same time, this is extremely concerning um, uh, and have real ramifications for democratic performance and threaten to move the US into a more, you know, mixed regime type status. But then again, just it's important to remember, this is all new that social scientists and political scientists have a much better sense of all this now where it was actually a huge blind spot where people 
scholars thought the US in the 1950s was, or the 1930s was a healthy democracy. Like now in retrospect, that is totally ridiculous when there was a completely authoritarian enclave within the country that kept, you know, sometimes near majorities of its state population from even exercising the franchise. Um, uh, and then again, I think that'll be crucial. And then I think also going into, uh, into the future is going to be crucial with these kinds of measures, because after the 2020 election, we've seen, uh, uh, you know, 360 some last I counted voter suppression types of bills. And many of them, like the Georgia bill that hit the news in recent weeks, have provisions in them that attempt to allow uh, state election administrators, often ones that are appointed uh, rather than elected, to basically just choose how to use the state's electoral college votes in presidential elections, regardless of what their uh, state electorates do in the presidential election. This is super concerning. My measure, like this is a big prediction for me, like a certain type of predictive validity into the future is whether my measure is going to track, you know, the states that are doing poor in democracy are the ones passing these new types of uh, uh, democratic backsliding bills. And it looks like they are, unfortunately. What's your estimation of the drivers of democratic backsliding in the United States? I think in the sort of very roughly, I would say in the popular imagination, maybe there are three explanations that are sort of thrown together sometimes, which is this is either driven by individuals, people like um, ex-president Donald Trump, for example, or I don't know, the governor of Texas, like bad actors that are for some reason um, doing nefarious things. There's another explanation, which is that um, this is driven by interest groups, right? Um, Politics is really some sort of um, organized combat by interest groups. And I don't know, for some reason, there are certain intergroups that are pushing for Uh, specific policies and they happen to be anti-democratic and I suppose the third explanation is is that there's some big ideological policy debate so there is possibly a growing constituency that is no longer interested in democratic politics in the United States and therefore is is, is supporting those kinds of moves Um, what's your what's your estimate here of course it could be all of these things right but um, I'm just curious what your um, what your opinion is on this I like your outline there that you uh, sketched for us. Um, so I think the things I test first in the paper, what I test are some sort of longstanding theories of democratic expansion and contraction uh, in comparative politics and within the US. And they're based in uh, uh, some sort of, uh, how would I put it? They sort of drop the proper nouns and they're meant to be generalizable theories of democratic expansion and contraction like partisan competition. So when parties compete, they may have incentives to find new constituents, new voters, right? This generates a positive feedback cycle of of trying to expand democracy to remain competitive. Um, There's the idea that polarization, right? Elite polarization erodes norms. So as the out party becomes more distant from you, there you have more incentive to keep them out of power by any means necessary. So, right, that could be generated by voters' polarization polarization since the 1970s or just elite-based polarization or something in the interest group environment polarizing. And then uh, there's a more more group-based theory. So I like your shout out to the organized combat of uh, sort of groups within the political system. And that's the tradition I come out of uh, 
in terms of thinking about American politics, certainly. And when we take a more specific lens, uh, uh, we see that the groups within the Republican Party coalition, both at its elite level and its mass level, both have now new incentives and interests in restricting democracy. Um, so this kind of uh, synthesizes uh, uh, some of the things I think uh, Nick was saying uh, pretty effectively in this question. So the Republican Party at its elite level, certainly uh, throughout a lot of its history, it's been the party of business, right? Throughout the 20th century, opposition to the New Deal was one of its organizing principles. But since the 1970s, um, both economic inequality in the US has increased dramatically and the Republican Party's sort of business base has become much more radical on economic policy compared to other conservative business parties around the world. The Republican Party famously is the only one that really, you know, does not believe or ostensibly does not believe climate change is real, that, you know, other conservative parties in the industrialized world don't, are not that radical on something economic. And that's the product of uh, partially economic inequality when uh, economic elites are, have more distant economic interests from uh, the median voter, then they're going to have increased incentives to restrict democracy because voters are now have preferences that are more distant on the economic dimension than them. At the same time, that rise in inequality and this sort of uh, business base of the Republican Party, as its economic platform gets less and less popular, and you saw that even through the Trump administration, where its two major policy proposals were essentially cut healthcare and tax cuts for high-end tax cuts. Both of those were some of the most historically unpopular major party legislation of the past generation, um, really remarkably unpopular, even among Republicans. And that shows that there's a, a real distinction between the Republican Party's elite base and its mass base. And one way they thread this needle, how does the Republican Party win, even in a minority rule institutional setup where you don't need to win majorities? How do you even get sort of strong minorities of voters to vote for you with that type of economic agenda? And the way you do that is to appeal to other dimensions of conflict, primarily the racial one, which is the longest legacy of mass conflict in the US. Um, other ones are sort of cultural conflict around, you know, the libs and intellect, like today, intellectualism and uh, sort of anti-wokeness and all this type of stuff as well, which is, of course, related to race and uh, other sort of uh, uh, appeals to traditional values and uh, things like that, right, religion and religious conflict. But again, identity-based and non-economic dimensions of conflict uh, are the appeals. And then the mass base of the Republican Party is quite interested in this. Like you can tell, I always say, you can tell so much more about uh, who someone votes for by their opinion of Colin Kaepernick and the NFL protests than you can by their pre preferences over minimum wages, health insurance, right, taxation. That does not predict your partisanship very well at the mass level. What does is your sort of racial and cultural attitudes, right? Who you want, who you get mad at on TV. Um, and that's true, like when you turn on Fox News, they're not talking about like capital gains taxes as much, even though that's on the agenda, they're talking about like Dr. Seuss is being canceled, right? So all of this means now this uh, Republican base is now motivated to, in a diversifying country, to restrict the franchise because they see themselves as increasingly a minority within a diversifying country. So 
Uh, to summarize, thinking about groups and group interests in society, right, within party coalitions, the Republican Party is just a fascinating one um, compared to other conservative parties around the world because it combines a very extreme right economic agenda for its elite base with a right-wing populist sort of uh, white identity resentment agenda for the base. Other conservative parties usually only have one or the other. You have European right-wing populist parties that are anti-immigration, but they tend to be pro-welfare state for the citizenry. And then you have other like traditional, the Tories and sort or that's a complicated situation, but like you have a lot of uh, mainstream conservative parties that are like, you know, pro-business, but are cosmopolitan, right? And like immigration do, because they like low wage labor and they like, you know, they are, uh, uh, you know, you know, uh, business class wealthy people who are cultured and are not, you know, you know, they don't want to be uh, the, uh, like, this is like the Whiggish, even in the US, the Whiggish uh, sort of party system was uh, partially that, right? A, the relative cosmopolitan party with business interests. Um, so the US is just very unique now. And as a result of Southern realignment to the Republican party, plus the rise of inequality since the 70s and the increasing sort of extreme right economic agenda of the Republican Party, you have this perfect storm for a really anti-democratic coalition. Then the Democratic Party is not some sort of like amazingly moral network here. It's not like they're there, but they have a, a set of bases. They have its own sort of professional middle class and tech industry base at a more elite level. Um, uh, that has pro-immigration preferences and things like that. Plus you have a base that's interested in sometimes in both progressive economic policy and to some extent racial liberalism, both of which point towards sort of expanding democracy to some extent. I will say that uh, Democrats uh, in state and local government are not, they're not always searching for new ways to expand democracy, but they're not backsliding it. So if we take this as given. I think it, it, the reason, part of the reason anyway, other than the brilliant statistics and, and the, the classy writing that your article has received so much attention is that it, it maps very well to kind of the perception of what we thought was going on, right? And so I'm wondering if, if it is this dire, if it is matching this expectation, what evidence either from elsewhere or within the United States can we provide as to kind of upsliding or redemocratization? Do we have a path forward based on the evidence or your explanation for why we are falling into these traps? That's a great question. So um, I do think uh, the Democratic Party now in national power has some potential opportunities. It's very difficult given the Senate and the sort of small state bias and conservative bias of the Senate um, but it's just really crucial in the time, like the uh, midterm elections always go bad for the party in presidential power. So they have precious little time, very likely, but um, national policy to safeguard election administration and provide national standards after the Supreme Court in, I think, 2013 issued the Shelby County v. Holder decision, removing some Department of Justice federal enforcement of uh, election administration. Um, and that sort of allowed for a wave of voter suppression laws and new forms of gerrymandering. Um, so a more vigorous federal enforcement through, for example, the HR1 uh, uh, sort of democracy policy would be crucial here. And there's been some great proposals for like a federal election 
uh, agency that would uh, have minimum standards for unbiased districting, uh, for, uh, you know, it would have national voter registration, right? So everybody's just automatically registered to vote nationally. Things like that are totally doable. Um, I would provide money to election administrators to have wait lines for polling places be shorter. All of these things are very crucial. Um, you know, avoid voter registration, roll purges, things like that. Um, then in addition, I think just really critically what we know from American history, besides just federal enforcement of elections is a truth that, you know, with the Voting Rights Act has been really important, but also that there needs to be, I don't think there's, there's, okay, to take a step back, there's a ton of things, uh, proposals out there. How do we stop this sort of conspiratorial, stop the steal, internet radicalization, things like that, right? That there's a anti-democratic forces plotting out there and we can somehow stop them. I actually think that's not as that's not very easy to do. Like it's very hard to put that cat back in the bag or a genie back in the bottle or beans, spilled beans back or whatever the metaphor. Um, what you can do though, is you can empower and subsidize countervailing organizations in power. And I think the biggest one in US history has really been uh, in the labor movement, which has declined tre tremendously since the 1970s. But some of my research with Paul Freimer says that not only do labor unions provide uh, working people in the US with a connection to politics and policy, it informs them politically, they feel a sense of collective agency, um, they get more involved in democratic decision-making and institutions. It, it also, my research with Freimer shows, it also makes white workers less sort of racially resentful and more interested in uh, solidarity and more interested in sort of class politics which public policy can actually do, right? When we think about this, racial resentment and sort of white identity politics has no policy content except maybe the wall of Donald Trump. But other than that, it's really just about yelling on TV, like, and sort of rhetorical resentment. That is a really dangerous thing for a diverse political society. So a return to uh, politics and policy that can actually affect people's material circumstances and lives would probably uh, really diffuse tension in the American political system. So what that pro act federally would uh, be a huge uh, important policy for the labor movement to allow uh, 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 union card check essentially to happen if a majority of workers sign up for the union then uh, the unions incorporated and it would uh, reduce the power of right to work laws in the states. Um, so both of those things, um, there's other sort of organizations that we should build up and we should build up uh, uh, congressional staff expertise in Congress and things like that. But I think really national democracy reform through HR1 and empowering the labor movement are the two crucial things going forward to uh, threading this needle uh, of sort of a coalition that has a serious element of right-wing populism plus a right-wing sort of economic agenda. So what do you think are the policy or ideological debates here? Because it, it does sound that you, it does sound like you believe that there is an element of ideolo ideology here, right? That like um, there is significant um, agreement on a lot of economic issues i think um you mentioned that earlier um so right. so what's the is it really all about um white versus black or as in like race relations issues in the united states or is there any other 
Like, what exactly is the ideological uh, division here? Yeah, I mean, it is really crucial. So again, the US public is highly polarized on social and identity issues, and it's not very polarized on economic issues. That's a really important thing to remember. Um, there's some, you know, there's conflict within the Democratic Party where younger voters vote for, you know, the more left candidates like Bernie Sanders and older voters like, you know, Biden and Buttigieg. And like, there are conflicts, but the major conflict at the mass level is sociocultural and it's around like you can turn on partisan media to sort of see the uh, common narratives but we even saw this more recently I forget the poll but you know Republican voters know a lot more about the cancellation of Dr. Seuss than they know about like the Biden policy agenda right national cultural conflict dominates. And this is really important for the American federal institutional system where so much is done by state and local governments in terms of democratic institutions and policing and whether people live and die or go to prison, plus like welfare state provision, unemployment uh, insurance. Now a lot of climate policy is done in the state, there's state cap and trade and uh, fuel efficiency standards. And yet nobody knows a damn thing about their state legislator or like people know in the democratic presidential primary, the difference between Elizabeth Warren and Buttigieg. They don't know in a state legislative primary, including us, I would imagine, uh, political scientists. We don't know the difference between primary candidates at the state legislative level um, or even gubernatorial level oftentimes. So what this means is that uh, there's been a huge disconnect where politics has, mass politics has become completely unassociated, independent of policy. So the major cleavages, I like, I don't wanna be insulting here, but like the cleavages are entirely cultural um, and uh, uh, sort of a, a deep identity-based resentment politics, which is that like people like me, if you're an older, typically older, whiter, more male, you know, semi-high income but lower education voter, like the Trump base is kind of like the used car dealer in a economically, the used car dealership owner in an economically down and out area who's white, uh, that voter is sensing that the country does not like people like them. The culture at the Oscars and like on TV shows, that character, that guy is not the hero in the shows. Like, and the you know, vice president and president, they criticize people like that and say they need to talk differently um, about race and gender issues now and things like that. Like that really is what it is. And it's unfortunate because public policy doesn't have much that can, it can do about that. So culture has completely taken over the policy and political realms in that way. And that's really the fundamental cleavage. Um, and, uh, uh, it's really about having your team in power. Um, and that's true, you know, among Democrats and liberals as well. Like there's not a tremendous amount of attention again on Biden's cap and trade or uh, excuse me, uh, capital gains tax proposal as much as there is on sort of, you know, uh, descriptive representation, like in the State of the Union, um, seeing uh, the importance of having two women as the Speaker of the House and the Vice President and things like that. Those are really critical to voters too. Um, and there's a lot of symbolic liberalism in American politics too. Um, and that's always been true. 
But uh, basically that is the main cleavage uh, among voters. But what's so different is that elites are polarized on economic issues where like the Trump and Republican economic proposals are extremely different from the current democratic proposals on the economic dimension. And that does not reflect differences among voters. So if it's the case that, you know, the problem is partly that there's too much attention paid to national level policy, right? That um, maybe in the United States, that is an extremely diverse country geographically, it, it might be elusive to think that we're, that the people in this country are going to be able to culturally agree on different uh, culturally relevant policies on a national level, does that not make the case again for more decentralization at the state level, which is sort of where we started this conversation? I love that question. You're going back Nick, to James Madison and the Federalist Papers there. This is a central argument for institutional decentralization is that nationally conflictual issues, and this has been made by Jonathan Rausch and Yuval Levin and David French, I was on a panel with recently made this case. There's a number of thinkers and pop intellectual scholars who have made this case for many generations is that in a nationally diverse society, having uh, conflicting nationally conflictual and nationally polarized issues on the national agenda produces a lot of mass polarization and anger. So uh, an example was in the mid 2000s, uh, LGBT rights and same-sex marriage, for example, was uh, sort of a state-by-state -state policy area, eventually became part of the national political discourse and became more conflictual. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if the states, you could, both people can move to the state where they like the uh, uh, LGBT rights regime and leave the states they don't and uh, can, in their areas, pass policies that sort of match their cultural uh, wishes in this way. That would be the goal. However, I think that's unfortunately just impossible in our contemporary technological age and in terms of uh, public policy in general. So now you have national media, the decline of state and local journalism, uh, the internet, uh, all of this means that you can't again, go back to an age where you can diffuse national conflict by devolving the policy authority to states and localities, unfortunately. Um, I wish that were the case, but um, both, uh, both people don't sort much, so people don't, aren't able to move much around the country for political reasons. They move for family, jobs, and uh, uh, good public schools often, um, and housing costs, <laughs> which are increasingly relevant, right? But uh, uh, the in addition to that, it's just, there is no way. So now you see like state governments and localities have been the main policy makers in terms of COVID responses, mask mandates, school closures, right? Education is completely state and local. And yet that is something you just hear, like everybody's demanding Biden talk about it. And the same thing with Trump, it was like, Trump, it was all about, again, national, cultural, everybody's COVID responses now, refracted through a national partisan lens, right? Of, you know, are you on the right? Is like mask virtue signaling on the left, you know, sort of uh, symbolic identification with the coalition. Um, this is just, it's just impossible. Like that, I think that would have been a great case. Like COVID responses could have been dealt with 
at the state and local level because that's where the policy was being made, but that's not where people's attention went. Do you think that a shift towards kind of the economic nexus would in some way allow people to focus more on local issues? Uh, do you think that it requires a crisis of democratic backsliding like we've seen in Georgia to get people excited about state level politics or is there some other way of going about this with a modern uh, kind of mass media environment? Yeah, I actually just, I don't think there's any going back to a focus on state and local politics. And that's for so many reasons, but you can see this again, the, this, uh, so voter suppression at the state level has, is reminiscent of Jim Crow based voter suppression. However, the politics are very different. It's still about racial conflict, but Jim Crow was about racial and economic conflict within states and localities, uh, you know, sort of ideas around land redistribution and public goods provision between the former large plantation owners and former sharecroppers, essentially, right? It's much more localized racial conflict and racial hierarchy, whereas currently it's about sort of the idea that the U.S. is like uh, uh, the sort of conservative uh, story here is that the U.S. is in uh, national decline, right? And that make America great again was central, right? The uh, now, this is national politics happening through subnational institutions. And that's what's different than Jim Crow when the parties were decentralized. And the Democratic Party of Alabama was very different than the Democratic Party of Michigan or New York or wherever, right? Now it's one, the parties are very similar across the country. Um, when you're, a party controls your state, you know what it's going to do. The same thing it does in every other state that it controls. Um, and that is, there's no going back on that. I think I turn to the economic dimension of politics would be important in many other ways, um, uh, but I think it would still remain national. But the big issue here, I think, and this has been talked about in different forms and different phrasing, but we have a real problem I'm trying to illuminate in my book is that between nationally coordinated political parties and decentralized institutions, they're colliding in really in ways that really limit ordinary people, ordinary people's ability to hold politicians accountable or understand what their government is doing. Uh, uh, people's connection to politics is now completely garbled. Where right, you have some sort of cultural thing you want done. People don't know what level of government tackles anything. There's not uh, a strong sort of attention to uh, uh, policy agendas that. Uh, can actually be done that have any sort of economic dimension to them. And this, uh, yeah, this is a huge problem. But really, I think the rise of like January 6th, uh, insurrection against multiracial democracy really shows us that to diffuse this sort of white nationalist and white identity politics, where that's really the powder keg, I think there the labor movement would be good too to take people who uh, feel like, you know, feel under threat and feel like they don't have much connection and the world around them is changing and give them some sort of sense of ownership over their politics and some connection to uh, their, uh, between politics and their material circumstances would be a really healthy thing to do for American society. You wanna ask one final question, Nick? I mean, I feel like if I ask more questions, I'm just going to keep on talking for like two hours. But um, I don't know. This is a fascinating topic. It's just honestly a little bit. It just seems to me like this is not going to end well. That's a good last question. So I have some. Yeah, this is a pessimistic story in my paper and book in a lot of ways. But I think there are some key openings. 
some of the biggest bright spots is, you know, with a, I don't, I don't have a good metaphor here, but a lot of conventional wisdom has been disrupted by the past five years or so, right? And that's, I think the silver lining is here in multiple ways. One, I think on American institutions, there is a civic religion in the United States going back a long way that the US constitution is an infallible, amazing document. But it turns out it was not the institutions that had the US performing well. It was like a lot of circumstances of, you know, norms, you know, elite norms, plus like, you know, maybe some like land resources, you know, a number of, and plus like, you know, uh, the cultural production of various subpopulations within the US. There's a lot of like things that are not related to the constitution that made the US like it succeed in many ways. And now I think people are starting to recognize that institutions like the Senate, the Electoral College, and I'm trying to say also decentralized federalism, those are actually problems and were not, you know, causes of American ascendance, but rather may have held it back a bit. So I think that's one thing that has really shifted. Um, the next thing that's really shifted is, uh, uh, I think in some ways the Democratic Party's uh, at its elite level, the post 1970s turn, which was that like, there could be a sort of, for lack of a better word, neoliberal technocratic sort of consensus in post Cold War politics um, and the end of history and so forth that this sort of like 90s would never end in these ways. And it's really shown that actually, no, you do need, for example, labor unions in a society really, even though they go off the rails, you know, the history of labor unions, like they had all sorts of problems. They sometimes got tied up in the mafia. They like say, you know, they're don't always follow like what, you know, high, the best of the brightest technocrats want them to do, but that those sort of organizations are really key to maintaining a society, a democratic society that doesn't burn down. Plus, uh, you know, thinking about like universities and student groups, like there's been a real decline in universities uh, in terms of their, their funding and their sort of uh, uh, cultural support from the mass public as conservatives have really attacked it over the past generation. All of these things are, I think now we're recognizing are crucial to maintaining democratic institutions and sort of uh, uh, a sense of efficacy and lack of like really radical uh, sort of resentment politics, all those institutions turn out to be really important. Another thing is just the economic agenda like in COVID and COVID relief has also really changed people's sense of austerity politics. Like all of these I think are really, in, they are important uh, points of optimism and a transition uh, that people recognize with this dark cloud there that was the silver lining i think yeah that's great i think it's always nice to end on a, on a high note but it's also important as you say if we are going to be shifting to this national politics and it's here to stay to at least ensure that everyone understands the processes and mechanics that make it function so we can get at actual solutions at that level that's great well thanks so much for coming on thank you very much jake 
Good times. Nice to see you guys. Thank you for listening to the Neither Free Nor Fair podcast. Please feel free to listen to our other episodes on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. You might also like the UW Political Economy Forums podcast, which is also available on iTunes and all other podcasting platforms. Our podcasts are produced by Morgan Wack and myself, Nicholas Wichdok. Our theme music was created by Ted Long. Please feel free to leave a review as we're curious about your feedback. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or concerns, please contact UW Economy at gmail.com. We would love to hear from you.